From the time of his triumphal entry in Matthew 21 until today's text in Matthew 25, the confrontation between Jesus and his detractors is virtually continuous. In chapter 21, Jesus enters the temple and kicks everyone out and turns over the tables. The next day, he curses a fig tree, the national symbol of Israel. And at the close of chapter 21, Jesus tells the most powerful men in Israel that their time at the top has come to an end. In chapter 22, Jesus rebukes Israel's hardness of heart, and he denounces their spiritual blindness as a willful act of rebellion. And then he schools the Sadducees about the resurrection, and then the Pharisees about who the Christ was prophesied to be. And then in chapter 23, Jesus takes the conflict to the next level. Because it's in that chapter that Jesus pronounces the seven woes upon the scribes and Pharisees. His words of condemnation are strong and absolutely unambiguous. But Jesus doesn't revel in the judgment he pronounces. You can see this in chapter 24, when we're in a moment of solemn tenderness, Jesus goes outside of Jerusalem and sits on a hill. And with tears surely in his eyes and the holy city in the distance, Jesus pronounces its coming destruction. The love of Israel had grown cold. Its streets were full of bloodshed. Its temples were full of sacrilege. The hearts of those supposedly devoted to God were not filled with the knowledge and the love of God. No, instead their hearts were overflowing with deceit and lust, with greed and with hate. God in the flesh had stood in their midst and most looked at him with either indifference or contempt. And as Matthew 25 opens, the first two parables show how real of a problem that is. The parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the talents are focused on one main element. The kingdom of heaven is breaking into this world and sides are being drawn. There is no neutral ground. There are no neutral parties. You will either side with or against the rightful owner of this world. So prepare yourself and keep watch for his return. And then at the end of Matthew 25, we have today's gospel text. And our text is essentially the conclusion, the culmination of this long verbal confrontation. I say verbal confrontation because in the very next chapter, you have the betrayal and arrest of Jesus and things move beyond words. Which means that our gospel text is the last portion of a conversation Jesus is having with his detractors about his legitimacy. From here on out, Jesus has precious little to say to those who oppose him. But don't think that his silence is meant to be antagonistic. No, Jesus has said everything he could possibly say to those who oppose him. He's performed miracles in front of their very eyes. He's opened the scriptures for them in ways they'd never thought possible. Yet many of his enemies were absolutely unmoved. And by the time of our gospel text, there were only two opinions people held about Jesus. Option one is given by the chief, chief priests, scribes, and Pharisees. Jesus was just some bum from Nazareth. Nothing more than a deceiver, a fraud, a blasphemer of the highest order. And he must be stopped at all costs. And there was option two. Jesus was the anointed son of the father. 
He was the promised Messiah. Jesus was the internal God in human flesh. Through, all, through him all things were made, and he was the Lord and creator of all. He was the one you were designed to know. If you walked the streets of first century Israel, those are your two options. And might I point out the obvious, those two options are still your only two. And what's interesting is how Jesus makes this exact point at the end of our text. Jesus ends the conversation by saying that at the end of all things, he will sit as judge over every single human who has ever lived. He ends the conversation by saying, as the enthroned king of the whole universe, it is his prerogative to do so. Those who hate him and those who love him will be called before him and he will judge them rightly. Their deeds will be laid bare and he will judge them with absolute transparency, with absolute fairness. Jesus will judge the nations and according to our text, he will inquire about one pivotal thing. How have you treated the least of these? Because however you have treated them, you've treated Jesus himself. And guys, I want to ask this question with all reverence. What does that even mean? Is Jesus saying that I'm rewarded with eternal life or punished with eternal death based on how I treat other people? Really? If I give some random poor person a cup of water, I'm good. But if the guy on the interstate ramp doesn't get the last $5 I have in my wallet, I'm going to hell? Is that what Jesus is saying? Is that really the formula for the final judgment? Well, no. But kind of yes. Here's what I think is going on. When it comes to what the least of these means, I think there's two overlapping meanings. The first is this. When Jesus says the least of these, I do think he means exactly that, the least among you. The guy at the homeless shelter, the guy standing on the street corner, they would be good examples of the least among us. And how you treat people like that is indicative of the kind of heart you possess. If you were cold and callous towards the poor and the downtrodden, I dare say it is impossible for you to have a clean heart before the Lord. So let's ask an uncomfortable question then. Where are our hearts when it comes to the least of these? Do we dismiss them because of their lowly state? Do we dismiss them because their friendship doesn't offer us some sort of worldly advantage? Do we determine someone's worth based on how well-connected they are? And do we dismiss others based on how little utility they might provide us? Because if we do, I have sobering news for you this morning. That is the heart of a Pharisee. That is indeed the kind of heart Jesus will judge on the last day. But the kind of heart that is welcomed into eternal life is a heart that is stirred with pity and compassion. A heart that is stirred with love the heart that prioritizes the person themselves and not the benefit they might bring you. Is your heart like that? Because if it is, then you are loving the least of these just as Christ does. And by doing so, you are loving Christ himself. Guys, I want to speak plainly. If God has given you a new heart, then you will love like him. 
And God's love is not predicated upon your actions or your behavior. You don't have to do anything in order to garner God's love. Even if you don't respond to His love, even if you hate Him, He loves you still. Guys, to love like God is to love without the promise of a return. God loves those who are trapped in sin. He loves those who despise and hate Him. He loves those who offer Him absolutely nothing in return. And by loving like that, the quality of God's love is clearly shown. He loves those who afford Him absolutely no benefit. And just as God's heart can be clearly seen in that, so too can ours. The first layer of meaning behind the phrase, the least of these, is focused on the kind of heart you possess. Does it look like the heart of Jesus, or does it look like the heart of a Pharisee? And here's the second layer. When Jesus is talking about loving the least of these, he's either saying this directly to or in earshot of the Pharisees and scribes. That means that Jesus is talking about the least of these to the religious elite of Israel, the somebodies. And as we've said, the somebodies thought Jesus was just an upstart from a nowhere town and a nobody family. And for as little as they thought of Jesus, they thought lower still of those who followed him. The disciples were such nobodies that they weren't even worthy of the Pharisees' contempt. In the eyes of Christ's enemies, the disciples were the lowest of the low. They were, in effect, counted among the least of all people. I think Jesus knows the Pharisees see his disciples in this way. I think Jesus knows that in just a few short days, he will be murdered and his disciples will be without their Lord for the first time in three years. I think he knows that the disciples feel unworthy to stand before the challenge of the Pharisees and scribes. These guys were well-known religious leaders. The disciples probably grew up hearing their names. They'd grown up for most of their lives revering these men. And sure, Jesus had stood against them and won, but he was Jesus. Who were they? A bunch of nobodies. So imagine how it must have made the disciples feel when Jesus so closely associates himself with his disciples. Sure, the disciples were nobodies. Heck, they were less than nobodies. But for as lowly as they may have felt about themselves, they didn't think that about Jesus. They believed Jesus was exactly who he said he was. Jesus was the king of the whole universe. And then they heard him say, however you treat my disciples, you've treated me. Guys, do you understand how amazing that statement is? Do you remember whenever Jesus said, if you reject him, then you've rejected he who sent him? If you reject the son, then you reject the father as well. Do you remember that? And Jesus said this was the case because he was the perfect image of the father. Whatever you find beautiful in Jesus, whatever you find winsome and lovely, whatever it is that you perceive in that moment is the heart of the father being shown through Christ. So to love Jesus is to love the father. To follow Jesus is to follow his father. So whatever you do with Jesus, whether it's accept him or reject him, hate him or love him, you have done the same thing with the Father himself. And then in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus applies that same exact relational dynamic to his disciples. 
In the same way that Jesus perfectly images the Father, by the Spirit, the church is to image the Son. And Jesus says, however you treat those people, however you treat His disciples, however you treat those who were reborn in His likeness, you've treated Him. Did you receive them? Did you welcome them? Did you love them? And then join the mystical body of Christ's church? Because if you did, then you're not just a member of CTR or wherever. If you were born of the Spirit, you were joined to Christ Himself. You were betrothed to the everlasting King. You are the bride of the eternal Son of the Father. I think that's the second layer of meaning here in Matthew 25. Those who were filled by His Spirit and call Him Lord, we are the least of these. The church is just a bunch of nobodies who spend their time serving the rejected and despised of this world. The church is the only body in the whole world that exists for its non-members. And we exist in this way because we serve a king who has shown us how. So to us, a bunch of nobodies from nowhere, Christ says, you'll do just fine. Go and preach the gospel. Go and share the good news that the Lord of all creation has come into this world in reclaiming everything that was lost. And it doesn't matter how insignificant you may be because the Lord over everything has identified himself with the least of these. And guys, I can't think of a better way to end this sermon than for a bunch of beautiful nobodies to stand and welcome into our family two precious children with the sacrament of baptism. Please come forward.